Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have uh, Eva Yazari with me, who we got to know each other initially through family office connections. And then you were spurred me to join YPO, which has been just a game changer for me personally and in my business. So thank you for that. And we kind of bumped into each other a lot over the years. And we're going to be talking about your book that you were kind enough to share with me, The Good Your Money Can Do which is just terrific. Um, so thank you so much for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. It's so good to be here with you. And, and thank you for highlighting my book. It was certainly a highlight of 2021. It's a lot of work, um, not insignificant. So I want to get into the book. I want to get into what you do, but could you give a little bit of background on yourself and and your um, your focus? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, I grew up in New York City. My parents are both working artists. I got dragged around New York City to galleries and was always asking if there were going to be any children there. And there never were. I was an only child. Um, but then uh, decided to study mathematics, which is not necessarily what somebody would guess coming from a family of true working artists. Um, but something clicked uh, when it came to the analytical side of, of my brain and um, graduated with a degree in math and when you do that and you're in a school in New York City, you go into finance. And so I started working on Wall Street, um, building models, investment banking, private equity, but mostly working in a fund of hedge funds. And somebody at the firm, you know, the, the, part, the partner, the owner of the firm, blessed me with the activist manager relationships. 
So I had the job that everybody wanted, which was to liaise with Bill Ackman, Carl Icahn, Nelson Peltz, Dan Loeb, all the big names that were taking a stake in a company and rattling for what they called change. And um, I actually, as I kind of like sat in my midtown office would look over Central Park and like think about what change actually could be in, in, in these contexts. And because I um, also have a family that lived in Africa, I um, didn't necessarily have some of the kind of ingrained thoughts around what emerging markets investing looks like. I actually saw it as a place of opportunity. So after Lehman, Madoff, and the big short trade, I decided to leave Wall Street and start uh, an impact venture capital fund, um, knowing that it would take a little bit of time to find the, the businesses um, that where impact was truly baked into a profitable and scalable business model. But um, I started that over a decade ago and created our first fund with strong top quartile returns, very strong impact where every dollar we invest impacts 37 lives. And now I am in the process of um, completing our second fund raise, which we have first closed and started investing. So um, that's kind of who I am. I'm definitely an investor, but in thinking about the book, I, I just, I sat in so many rooms and had so many observations, including around my personal wealth, where I just had to share these thoughts with an audience and um, felt really honored that uh, people like you would read the book. Well, so I'm big on making definitions to help drive conversation. Could you talk about what has become a very above the fold type term right now, the differences between impact investing, ESG, and then you talk about conscious investing in your, in your book and you have a great newsletter um, and a lot of content around that that you produce. Could you maybe unpack what those terms mean and don't mean and, and if they are interchangeable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've learned a lot between the different things I've done over the past 12 years after leaving Wall Street. Um, meaning, you know, while I've been a deep impact VC investor where there really is no debate over kind of financial return and impact in a company and how they can go hand in hand when you're providing access to healthcare or financial inclusion or agriculture tools in emerging markets like Africa and India. But then on my personal wealth side, I've been able to get to know ESG, which is a ter the term that refers to the acronym that refers to environmental, social, and governance investing. And um, there is a major distinction between the two um, impact investing in a more active way and ESG, which is just more passive. It's about screening out from a portfolio. It's about taking out the usual, you know, tobacco, alcohol, whatever it may be that's not consistent with your values. And um, I think where I've come to in becoming a conscious investor, which is an investor that is thinking about values in all decisions in my life. And frankly, thinking about wealth as more than money. So my, it's also my consumer choices, my voice, my social media, my um, 
you know, like the things that I can create, even, even kind of the creative side of, of, of my work. Um, conscious investing really opened up this whole discussion of the fact that ESG is not enough for me. Um, and I, I, I'm even, you know, in some of the groups that we're a part of, whether it's kind of family office world or the young president's organization, these conversations are bubbling to the surface. I think we've had ESG screened out portfolios for long enough to discern that when you open up and see what the top holdings are in these funds, they're just big tech companies. And that's been good, you know, for performance in certain ways, depending on, you know, what time horizon you're looking at. But if you're using this as a tool to truly live your values, and for me, my values come down to gender, equality, racial equity, and the climate emergency. And if I want to teach my kids about being able to invest and have, you know, financial and social and environmental returns, and we open up a, a, you know, a top holdings and we just see Disney and Microsoft and maybe even Facebook, I don't think these are very authentic ways of expressing values. And so this is where the debate is currently. Um, there are some that like the, the, the well-known ESG whistleblower, Tariq Fancy, who says that ESG is complete window dressing. I believe it's a good stepping stone because, you know, most investors do need liquidity in their portfolios and where we are now, you really can't build a portfolio with, you know, much deeper than some sort of ESG, ESG screening. There's more interesting stuff you could do on the debt side, um, like lending to kind of different communities, people of color, um, or lending in, uh, in, in even in, um, uh, just like you know, neighborhoods or areas where there isn't so much access to capital that still have strong, good, good com- comparable yields. But when it comes to equity, it is a tricky time in the space. Um, so the answer is there are different ways to be a conscious investor. But I think when being overwhelmed, um, I always tell people that it is a personal choice. And if ESG is your personal stepping stone, that's great because let's not let, let perfect be the enemy of good. And how do you how do you think about incorporating the meaning into the investment itself? In other words, it, it seems like, you know, I'm a millennial barely, but I do qualify that there is this sense that there needs to be a double or triple bottom line return on your investment beyond the dollars, right? That we have this obligation there. And, and how do you, as an investor, think about using that framework when deciding what public companies or private companies to invest in? The first step is to define your values. Um, I mean, this is obviously after you, as you rightly pointed out, you make the intention to have more than a financial return, which in, in the book, I, I kind of describe as um, understanding that no investment is neutral, that everything we do has a positive or negative impact and absolving and um, ignoring that fact does not absolve you of any responsibility. Um, But once you've done that and you say, I want to dive in, I want to do something. The first step is really defining your values. What do you, what are you passionate about? I mean, I think the trickiest part about impact is that it is so personal and we are used to investing in a way that is relatively commoditized, templated, process-driven. I mean, I'm a VC, like, that's, we've got our process and there's a way we do things. 
Um, and this is thinking a little bit outside of the box, but I ask readers and just, you know, people that I'm having this conversation with to think about maybe where they're giving philanthropically, maybe where they're spending their money, you know, what they're buying. Um, those two areas can give a lot of clues or maybe what their family has cared about, um, perhaps for, you know, for years past or even generations. And lastly, maybe to examine some biases and see if that they want to work on their biases through, um, you know, implementing conscious investing strategies. And so, yes, it's, it is important to know your North Star um, or your North Stars. Otherwise, you know, you will be bombarded with opportunity. You'll be bombarded with the, you know, environmental clean tech ESG screen fund, and you'll be bombarded with a more socially oriented ESG screen fund or, and, or one that only invests in females on boards. Um, and you'll just be like, wow, I don't really know what to do. So um, the beauty is you can really tailor make a portfolio at this point in time in the ESG space to specific values. And that's why defining them is so important. So that makes a lot of sense on a go forward basis. Mm -hmm. it, is it necessary? And if so, what are best practices to do a deep dive into what you already own? And we've done that to some extent within our family and it's very painful, like emotionally, and yeah. it can be um, pretty controversial as well. You really understand the various family members, um, like their, their, their biases, their leanings. Um, yeah, I would, would love to hear your thoughts on, on that perspective. Yes. Knowing what you own is a component of wealth consciousness. And wealth consciousness is extremely important for becoming a conscious investor. Um, if you are not aware of what is in your portfolio, how will you know what you want to change? In the family office context, there are a lot of advisors. Um, I recently had an advisor show me my portfolio and there was a lot of red, meaning not good for the environment. And this is something that I'm actively working on and moving pieces to you know, specific funds that are more authentic. Um, but if you're doing this on your own, then I would literally pull up, you know, every position or the top 10 holdings in every mutual fund, which is typically probably what you're investing in and put together a list. It's not going to take you that long. Um, and sit there and ask yourself, do you want to own those companies? Do you believe that the leaders of those companies are conscious? Are they thinking about all stakeholders? And I'm just giving you the filter of maybe where my values would be landing. Are there enough women and people of color represented amongst the managers of those funds? Because you can find that out, who's managing that money, but also amongst the company leadership. Um, and map that to your values. And you can do the same exercise with your consumer choices um, and with, um, you know, kind of daily decisions. Um, I always, you know, kind of like to pull up the, the water bottle for me as like the convenient example, the glass water bottle is the convenient example of a way that I also did this Marie kondo to use, you know, the sparking joy term, Marie kondo also my consumer choices. Um, if I really do care about the climate emergency, I should not be contributing additional plastic to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Um, so uh, I think that, yes, it's an excellent point. 
that it is important to reflect. And yes, it can be, it can be infuriating. You could sit there and, um, and feel misguided for decades. You could sit there next to a family member or a husband or, or wife or spouse and realize that you are not on the same page. Um, and so that is something that I think can be challenging, but I can tell you that it's worth it. It's worth it to know what you own. It's worth it because we have choice. And I'll tell you one quick story, um, which is uh, in 2012, I was sitting in, I was living in Switzerland at the time, sitting in the, in a Swiss bank's private banking office, beautiful, uh, beautiful view over Lake of Zurich. And I was told I couldn't take Philip Morris out of my portfolio. I don't think anybody would debate with me that Philip Morris is not an aligned investment with my values and with anybody who cares about health, well-being, the good of society, global public health, whatever it may be. And I wasn't so angry at my advisor at the time. I was really angry that he didn't have the tools. And that was one of the genesis um, moments for me in writing my book um, to think, it was actually one of the moments where I became a conscious investor and not just an impact investor, where I decided to think really differently about how to use all resources. And, and this is a really good place to ask this question. Is there still, is there still a place for traditional philanthropy? I mean, the, the thousand dollar dinner plate type of deal to support the arts or miniature greyhound rescue dogs. Um, it, it, is there a place anymore for that? Or is that whole, is that whole world going to shift away? No, I think there's absolutely a place for philanthropy. Um, there are a lot of areas that require philanthropic support. Um, one of them is typically education. As you mentioned, the other is the arts. Um, I'll touch, come back to the arts because I do think that there are innovative ways to become an impact investor in the arts as well. Gates has proven to us that toilets are not, globally, are not a sustainable business. Um, I've been an investor in a toilet business that I exited at a 2.3 times multiple uninvested capital, but I can tell you that took a long time. It ate into the IRR. Um, and so there are, I think, across the board areas that do need philanthropic support. What I would ask philanthropists to do is to think about how to be very effective with their philanthropy. And that is because I think that philanthropy can help unlock sustainable solutions as well. And so it doesn't always have to be a cycle of grant making. And I can tell you as somebody who who actually has spent time in the past raising grant funding, it's tiring for the people that are working in those roles. Um, and in some cases, it would be incredible for them to have access to, to a more sustainable model. So to think about that. But the feeling that somebody gives when sh gets when showing up at a, a charity gala, and I live in Dallas, these things happen every single weekend, three times a weekend. Um, is, is something we shouldn't ignore. Why can't we have that same feeling about our investment portfolios? Why can't we wake up feeling completely aligned with our values and knowing that at the least we're making progress to towards alignment with our values and we're not trading off return because there is a myth out there that you have to trade off return 
when it comes to impact in a portfolio and especially with ESG, that's that myth has been dispelled. But I think um, we're seeing more and more purpose-driven companies. My podcast interviews purpose-driven leaders um, from all across the US, Europe and emerging markets. And um, what I learned from that is that this way of doing business is not new. And it also comes in many shades of gray. And um, I think it's just, it's a really big opportunity for investors to also reclaim the feeling of investing um, and not just make it about money, making more money. So especially for older investors, like my father-in-law, for instance, right? The patriarch of the family, in his mind, there's a real delineation between what the family foundation does and what our corpus of investment assets does. When you're talking about impact investing or being a conscious investor to these type of people or the segment of the population, what have you found to be an effective pitch? What is the value proposition that you can bring to them to, to drive action? Yeah, well, I am, I think this is my mathematics side. I'm all about efficiency. So if you tell me I can have my cake and eat it too, done. But if that mindset is not there, then I think it comes down to certain paradigms around what legacy um, that generation wants to leave. And a sustainable legacy, I think, you know, is one that you know lives into the into the future. You know, we've seen people who've created, and we can talk about even companies like Southwest Airlines that you know, treats its employees extremely well. It's always on time. Herb Keller was a servant leader, you know. Wesleyan Wesley most... University graduate. Oh, there you go. My boy, fellow alum. Yeah, I mean, he was such a servant leader. And, and so I think he's a great example of like, while he, he, I'm sure he has a philanthropy and, you know, has had a, fa- had a family office and somebody's taken that on. Um, with the business, he really created a legacy that was sustainable and long-term. And that is what I think impact investing gives you, that philanthropy does not. And a traditional portfolio can f- always feed a funda- foundation. But bringing them together, I think, just brings so much more power into that narrative of what legacy is. So rethinking the legacy. And then the second is that we know... A uh, good friend of mine, YPOer, wrote a book called Elevated Economics. His name is Richard Steele. He makes the case that all businesses and all investors should care about impact because millennials are inheriting $68 trillion. And I think what's it's a little bit of a nuanced point, but I think what's really important about this is that if millennials are not educated properly or they don't have the right tools to deploy that, in a way that goes beyond ESG, the next generations will be left with significant challenges. And we're already seeing them. So I think there is a major argument. It's not just, oh, millennials are money, inheriting money and 70% of them you know, say that they've made an impact investment to date. That's fine. But I think, um, again, going back maybe to this point of legacy, you can actually materially correct some of the impacts of climate or some of the impacts of social un- unrest um, and things that we don't even know we're going to see in the future with investment. And so if you can still achieve a market rate return, why not jump on that bandwagon um, and really kind of support the next generations? 
So, uh, I mean, you wrote this book, you know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to call out a section that, that caught my attention. Wealth by itself is boring. There is a limited amount of truly fulfilling goods, services, and experiences that money can buy. Impact investing allows you to do more with your money by helping you to feed your soul, find peace, and create harmony. I thought that was actually probably pretty scary to write for your audience or for folks that we interact with, especially yeah. as a fund manager, right? But it resonates, at least it resonated with me. Um, how do you how do you use that in your in your message in your story in, in in how you conduct yourself as a fund manager? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So look, I just see wealth as one element. Uh, excuse me, I just see money as one element of wealth. And I was trained extremely well on Wall Street. I mean, look, I was hanging out with Bill Ackman. You know, I was I know the language of money. Um, like the back of my hand. And I just, you know, what I've, again, what I've kind of come to realize is that there is more, um, as you mentioned, and that you, as you read, peace, harmony, feeling in going beyond just money, making money. And um, as a fund manager, I think it plays out really in a, in a really, um, incredible way because it, it basically plays out as innovation. So what are we doing in our fund? We're investing in relatively niche strategy. So we call it need to have is led by conscious leaders in East Africa and India. So for most American investors, that is a niche strategy. Um, but we're creating this diversified portfolio um, and really actually taking the best of Wall Street practices, best practices, diversification, risk management, but applying it to very impactful businesses. Um, and we are, again, we're expecting, you know, the top quartile venture returns. But when we invest, we don't invest in the spray and pray model. So this is some of the ways this kind of mindset plays out, because um, we don't believe it's only about money. If we were to take a portfolio, let's say round numbers, 10 companies, invest in those 10 businesses, and then expect one, you know, 10 to 20 to 30 X, and then the losses be subsidized by the rest of the winners in the portfolio, um, we would be banking on the loss of social impact. So when you put the impact and the financial return on the same plane, you start to make different decisions. That doesn't mean that we can't achieve the same returns as other venture funds. It just means we have to kind of rethink our funding model. Um, so we are looking for companies that are more consistently banded between five and 10X, and we have a couple 20 and 50Xs modeled out in our fund modeling. Um, the other way is that we're giving a percentage of the general partner profit share to every founder in the portfolio. I think this is a strategy every Silicon Valley VC should invest, uh, should, should adopt, because think about it in a competitive situation. There is an enlightened self-interest um, component to us doing this, in addition to making sure that we want our founders to believe that they are partners and owners in our work, truly. They will also value us differently when we come to the table as an investor in their company, um, when they think, when they meet other incredible entrepreneurs that we should be talking to, um, to add to the portfolio. Um, and uh, I think that they will also give us better transparency. So we, we build relationships because we believe that relationships are also one way of expressing wealth, one, one form of wealth. Um, so those are two examples. And the last is like, 
thinking creatively about how to communicate. So I know most VCs don't have online magazines or now they all have podcasts, but um, it's not typical, I think, to, to kind of speak a narrative of, you know, this type of work makes you feel good. So, it, so it's important to do, but um, there's much, there's much beyond, uh, there's much underneath that for us. But I think that what we're trying to do is help people understand that impact investing doesn't have to be overly academic. It doesn't have to be niche. You don't have to be Musk or Zuck. You don't have to have only a quarter of a million dollar check. You could actually just change your bank account and still be an impact investor. And I think that that is a pretty powerful notion. So perfect jumping off point because we've we've touched on the thematic, which I think is important. We've made some definitions. This is a evolving space. And even for someone like me that lives in this world, kind of, it can be confusing to, to differentiate ESG impact, et cetera. So it's really useful, but let's get nitty gritty and talk about practicalities, how people can execute on these themes. And this is the second part of the book, which I really want you to, to break down section by section, which is what can you do today? And it starts with defining your values. So could we go through this exercise and, and kind of give people a playbook that they could use themselves? Sure. Yeah. The second and the second part of the book is intended to be a playbook. So you could actually read this book, just the second part, or you could read the first part and then, you know, move on. Um, also, uh, just a little preview is that I have a planner coming out in 2022 for somebody to go through a 14 pro, 14 week program of the seven steps to becoming a conscious investor which are drawn out of the book, but absolutely. So I think defining your values, we touched on, you know, what are you passionate about? Where do you want to focus on? Um, the second area is just, is practicing wealth consciousness and really recognizing the importance of living your life according to your values. And that takes practice. You know, it, you're not going to wake up one day and say, wow, I really, I really want to, you know, I, I really want most of my life to be more consistent with my views of, um, you know, the climate emergency and, you know, not contributing to that. Um, but it, it takes, I'd say the practice that it takes is just being conscious again, why, why I think the term conscious investing is so important over impact investing or ESG or these other terms. Um, and what I think is important is to set your, your level, your view of wealth to the one of abundance. So again, for me, money is more than wealth is more than money. Um, and when I say abundance, I mean, this is not a zero sum game. The pie is not finite. When I win, Brian, you're not losing, you're winning too. Finding a win-win. And however somebody wants to tap into that, whether it is Lynn Twist's The Soul of Money or John Mackey's Conscious Capitalism book, there are many different tools out there for different mindsets. Um, even, you know, people like um, Stephen R. Covey, um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, taps into some of these mindsets around win-win and um, abundance. So I think that's really important. We also touched on knowing what you own, but I think that that's another important step in this playbook. Um, really being able to review your investment options or know what's in your portfolio, or frankly, just know whether your bank is on the banking on climate report, if that's an area that you're, you're thinking about impacting. And sadly, every bank that we would list here in the first dozen would be on that, except for maybe First Republic. 
Um, but there are other options. There are B Corporation certified banks, um, which are companies that have gone through a certification process for People, Planet, and Profit. And there are B Corporation certified financial planners. There are a lot of, um, that's a great filter that, that people can also use to find alternatives. Um, because once they appreciate the fact that you can generate social, environmental, and financial return, um, you can really start to act. And the book has a pretty extensive chapter seven around what you can actually do. And then the last two points are creating a community. This is not work that you can really do on your own. It can get frustrating. It can get, it can get confusing. It can get just you know tiring at times. And find, whether that's finding a group within the Young Presidents Organization, finding a group within a family office group, finding an Invest for Better chapter. There's a great organization. I know there's one I don't know if there's one in Tennessee. I know there's one on Arkansas, Arkansas for sure. And I have a small group here in Dallas. But these are actually women who've come together who are interested in more impact investing. And there's a easy six meeting curriculum to take women on the journey. And frankly, it could, can be adopted for anybody. It's on their website. And then the last point is to think about other areas. So to be a discerning consumer and an active citizen and you know to use the other tools. So, so, so to help recognize that there are other tools out there and it's not just about money. So uh, again, the, the book is really helpful to walk through all this and, and I highly recommend it. We'll link to the show notes to it, but, you. but you know, definitely want people to, to check it out because it's a great resource. Let's pivot now to a little bit of what you do on the, on the investing side, on, on the fund business. Explain to me that journey and, and, some of the mistakes, some of the wins, the losses, what the focus is on the fund and where you're finding opportunity today. Yeah. Well, most investors are under allocated to emerging markets, whether it's through an institutional portfolio or whether they're allocating on their own. And um, what really got me excited was a study called The Next 4 Billion. It's very, very old. And I'm sure there have been updated versions of, of studies like this um, but it basically said that low-income individuals do have budgets for basic goods and services. And, um, you know, things, things like education, I think we've mentioned previously, they do require more subsidy. But when it comes to healthcare, banking the unbanked, and even agriculture innovations and tools, um, there, is, there are a lot of businesses out there that have not been rethought, have not been innovated, have not been disrupted. And so that's, that's where I invest. Um, it's in seed and series A stage businesses that are providing access to need to have. The secret sauce for me is conscious leadership. Um, I believe that where you don't want to have, if you don't intend to have a trade-off between financial and social and environmental returns, then you need to have a conscious leader running that business. And I'm not sure this is my favorite recommendation, but I have read John Mackey's Conscious Leadership book. I think it's a good primer to what conscious leadership actually is. Um, and then there are some other sources to go a little bit deeper. Um, but we do use that as a filter. We actually score for it in our due diligence process. We have a questionnaire um, that we send in kind of the mid to late stage of DD as well out to founders. But other than that, we apply the very, very VC traditional approach um, to our due diligence, um, like, and we do it regardless of whether we're leading a deal or not, because we, um, we're very due diligence, I would say kind of not heavy, but we're very focused on making sure that we're investing in the most legitimate and viable 
um, companies with a promise of the impact attached to them. Um, I'm seeing a lot of opportunities in healthcare right now, um, particularly in Africa. Um, there is one doctor, for example, in Uganda for every 50,000 people. I think it's, it's, I can't remember what the US stat is, but it's, it's definitely not that. It's very, very different. Um, and what that means is, you know, people still need medical support, but they just don't have access to it. Um, and so creating the right model, whether it's telemedicine or whether it's brick and mortar, but leveraging technology. And we're looking at a great company right now that's using a, a pretty strong clinical decision-making system for um, their healthcare workers in their clinics. Um, I think there's tremendous, tremendous opportunity. Um, we also see the banking the unbanked um, theme uh, coming up in our portfolio, um, whether it's, we actually like, to, like it more in a niche fashion. So whether it's uh, gig economy workers, um, motorbike drivers, um, or wage advances, um, we're seeing a lot of that in the portfolio as well um, in the pipeline. And so um, what we're aiming to do is also be conscious on, in our own right as shareholders. And so there are times where we have to break convention with traditional VC um, and maybe you know, think differently about founders that are working in environments where they are inherently risking their lives and you know, make sure that they have life insurance and things like that that wouldn't necessarily be required in the US um, and maybe wouldn't be would be considered fluffy in a traditional like safe VC Y Combinator style deal. But um, I think, you know, it's important to apply local, local context. And, and if people, you, you've referenced a lot of things here during the conversation <laughs> in terms of books and resources, but if people wanted to educate themselves, obviously you're putting out great content. The book is terrific, but what are you digesting every day podcasts, blogs, media to, to stay on the, on the vanguard of this entire industry? Yeah, I'm actually doing um, the workbook for the seven habits of highly effective people right now. I think people somewhat um, underestimate or you know often don't know that a lot of these business books have been broken down into kind of planners or workbooks. That one I think is really, really transformative. I would recommend that to anybody because it just keeps my leadership game, what, what conscious leadership um, paradigms would call above the line. So always making a decision from above the line. I also really like, um, this is the other more in-depth conscious leadership book that I would recommend, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Um, this goes much deeper. It's, it's also kind of a playbook for leaders as well. So that's really important to me. Um, my coach, uh, Karen Eldad, has a great podcast called Coached, um, which I think dives into some of the other um, just, you know, day-to-day -day points that um, I'm trying to work on. But when it comes to um, kind of business podcasts, how I'm kind of staying on top, I listen to a couple Africa podcasts. One's called The Flip Africa. The other one is called Africa Daily, which is actually a BBC production. Um, and I also um, really love some of the, the podcasts out of the Harvard Business Review. So they have um, a couple that I listen to, including Exponential View with Azim Azar, um, which I think is 
really gives like kind of a, a way to, you know, think differently. Um, Great newsletter, blog. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I actually learned about equitable venture through one of his interviews. So the, the giving the profit share um, to the portfolio companies. And then um, I do really like uh, Guy Raz. Um, he also has a really good children's podcast. I know you have kids. It's called Wow in the World. But um, I love um, View from the Top. And I could listen to how I built this all day, every day. It's It just sticks in my mind. Um, and it, those examples, I think, are really important um, of entrepreneurship, especially being a funder of entrepreneurs and really understanding that that story. I do believe that founders work harder than VCs. Pretty controversial, I would think, amongst the VC community with some of these GPs that I know. But as a founder, <laughs> as a, as a founder myself, I would, I would tend to agree. Um, yeah. It's easier to, it's, it's, I think it's easier to have the money and I know GPs have to go out and raise and that's its own kind of set of, uh, set of challenges and, and heavy lift. But I really do think that the founders who are in the trenches are, are truly kind of doing the heavy lift for the VCs. Well, Eva, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been awesome. I'm glad we could finally get this on tape. We've known each other for a while and I'll also point out you've been exceedingly helpful to my sister-in-law who has an impact investing startup. So I want to thank you for that on the record. Um, if people want to get the book, learn more about what you're doing on the investment side, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yes. Um, I'm always available on LinkedIn messages. Um, the book can be, uh, you can learn about the book and where to buy it aside from Amazon. Um, even though Amazon is linked uh, at thegoodyourmoneycando.com. And um, just simply, if you want to know what I'm up to, you can visit my personal website. It'll link to everything. It's called itsivayazari.com as well. Um, but I do welcome any feedback. And Brian, so glad um, that you have invited me to this conversation. Um, yeah, I'm just excited to hear from your audience if they have any feedback. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it and look forward to staying in touch. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.